Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. My name is Marcus Honeysett. As Director of Living Leadership, I'm delighted to be able to share with you that we are launching a second podcast called the Nigel Lee Archive. With the encouragement of Nigel Lee's family and material from his church and ministries with which he served. Who was Nigel Lee? Well, you won't find much written by him, but his impact on the world of Christian ministry and missions in the latter half of the 20th century was enormous. He encouraged hundreds, perhaps even thousands of people across the world into Christian work through Operation Mobilisation, UCCF and Might and Church in the UK. I was one of them. Not only was Nigel a great evangelist with a huge smile and a wonderful personal encourager of Christian workers, he was also known around the world for his incredibly accessible and powerful teaching and preaching of the Bible. And it's this that we're now making available through this new podcast. Some of the addresses you'll find on the podcast refer to specific situations in which they were preached. You will need to make allowances for that as you listen. But all of them you will find increasing your own passion for God's Word, the Bible, and for the glorious good news of Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh as Saviour of the world. We have a lot of recordings to release on the podcast over the coming years. At Living Leadership, we are thrilled to begin what we are sure will become a treasure trove archive. To give you a taste of the podcast, we are pleased to share with you the first episode in this feed today. We pray that it will encourage and help you to enjoy God in the scriptures. To hear the rest of the archive, you can subscribe to the Nigel Lee Archive in any podcast app or visit the Living Leadership website. Thank you, Steve, very much. If you have uh, your Bibles with you, could you turn back to that chapter that was so well read for us um, by some of the the youth team, Philippians chapter 4. This is my first time uh, here with you this week. I've been up to now with the student track. I must say you are enjoying yourselves and sounding almost as loud and noisy as they are. Anyway, it's good to... To be here, they've been having a great time up in center stage. I think they probably should have called it the crazy horse, but anyway, that's where they've been. And um, this is my last word alive. Uh, For some years, anyway. Uh, The next couple of years, I shan't be in the country when it it rolls around. I've been on the committee uh, since the beginning. And uh, with a job move, uh, it's time for me to move on. And like you, I shall be driving home shortly with memories. Thinking back over this past week and, uh, in fact, over these past eight years. And I wonder what your memories will be as you go home uh, from these past few days. I shall be thinking of... I think about four different kinds of people. Because when you, you get involved here, it takes seminars, you, you sit at meal table, my wife isn't here, so uh, a succession of people have been sort of coming and sitting near me. 
And um, I remember, we'll remember as I drive Skegness, Boston, Grantham, home, getting faster and faster as I get nearer and nearer. I shall think of the people I've talked to this week who have real frustrations with their church. The frustrations with um, the leadership, with the direction or lack of it, with the disunity. I shall think back over some of the folk I've met this week um, who are coping with bereavement. And you came here very bravely in order to, again, uh, meet the Lord among his people. And I hope that's been true for you. I shall drive home thinking of those facing threats to their jobs. Talk to a number like that. And the possible financial insecurities that may very shortly break upon you. I've talked to a number of people who are quite um, worried and concerned about the future in some way or other. It could be to do with health. A close friend and colleague of mine has gone home early because of health problems. It could be to do with children. Your kids. What a, what a responsibility. It could be to do with perhaps um, what to do next in life. And you've been coming into this tent and you've sat before the Lord day after day, opening up to some degree uh, your, your struggles and thoughts and fears and so on uh, and asking for the Lord's help. And we come now to the last message of this year's Word Alive in Philippians chapter 4. And it seems to me to be a chapter that is crammed full of, of the promises and principles which Paul had, had discovered and distilled in his long years of, of Christian service. And many of these things, as I was reading and pondering uh, what to say with you this morning as we get ready to go, many of these things seem designed to fortify you on the way home. There's a number of, of great principles which you could, um, people have, hammered up uh, in, in their homes or, or stuck up in sort of motto form. I spent many, many years working with OM, Operation Mobilization, from the late 60s onwards. And in the early days of OM, we had to learn certain chapters of the Bible off by heart. I don't know whether they still do that. I slightly doubt it. But we learned Romans 12. We learned 1 Corinthians 13. We, we learned this chapter, Philippians 4, and a number of other chapters. We didn't always have a lot of food to eat. But we, we learnt a lot of verses about being content in all circumstances. We've got 30 to 40 minutes. I want to break the chapter into three. Firstly, Paul appeals for unity. Verses 2 and 3. Secondly, he gives us some of the marks of a Christian mind. Verses 4 to 9. And then thirdly and finally, he opens up to us something he's been learning. The secret of contentment between verses 10 and 20. Verses 2 to 3 then. I think if I were to ask you what um, are 
the major theological problems that Paul is dealing with here in the church in Philippi. What would you say? The major theological problem. Because in fact we find that he is not getting after them um, as, as he does the Galatians or the Corinthians. In fact, I don't think there is a major theological problem that the church in Philippi appear to be troubled by. They are doctrinally absolutely orthodox. And they're also very active in evangelism. There's loads of it going on, and you can find references to evangelism peppering the book. They are also, in addition, financially very generous. Sacrificial giving, pouring out of their their pockets, if they had pockets in togas, I don't, I don't know. Anyway, and, and giving to Paul and, and Christian work. They gave to him when, when he was in uh, Rome here. They sent repeatedly gifts of money and who knows what else to him when he was in Thessalonica with his team. God has started a really good work in them. So what's the problem? They don't really like each other. We've had references at the end of chapter 1 and at the beginning of chapter 2 to this underlying thing of of disunity. And here in chapter 4, it comes to a head and he implores two people, two women, Euodia and Syntyche, and he implores both of them by name. They were believers. They had stood beside Paul in a number of his gospel campaigns. They knew the gospel. They knew that the gospel wasn't about what we do. It isn't even about our evangelism. The gospel is about what God has done, which you can't change, which is absolutely secure. It is the finished work of Christ. And they had shared that with people. They loved the Lord. Their names as believers were in the book of life, says Paul. And yet they're at loggerheads. Why is this recorded in Scripture? These two poor women who ever since have been known as a quarrelsome pair. Why is it there? It's there, I think, because it is such a common problem. In our churches, maybe some of you are going back to this sort of stuff. And it's noticeable that Paul does not say, now look, you two, will you please stop bickering? Get it sorted out. Get together in a room and don't come out until you love each other. What he says is, could someone else, a third person, get in and actually begin to draw you two together? What a gospel ministry. What a Christ-like thing to do. I ask you, he says in verse 3, loyal Sisygus or loyal yoke fellow. Sisygus, yoke fellow in the original, might actually be his name. We simply don't know. Or he might be referring to someone else, maybe Epaphrodite, who he's already written of in the letter. But I urge you too, he says, and through the help of this other fellow, to be of one mind. Philippians has more references to the mind than any other New Testament epistle. How do our minds work as Christians, as Christian workers, as people involved in very real churches that do sometimes have underlying divisions? The great central passage in Philippians. The start of chapter 2, which is like the tentpole um, holding the whole thing up, 
Paul says, have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. The NIV makes a bit of a mess of it and calls it an attitude, but actually it is the original word, mind. Have this mind in you. Be like-minded, he says. Towards the end of chapter 3, he says, there are some people in your fellowships and they mind earthly things. Here he's asking these two to work with someone else, maybe, until they are of a common mind. They had so much in common already. A common sharing of the gospel, hope, experience, love, joy in the Lord. Now, be of one mind. And then this leads Paul on um, from verse 4 to list a number of features, features of a healthy Christian mind or mindset as we American-influenced people would now call it. Five features of a healthy Christian mind. Verse 4, number 1, be joyful. He repeats it twice. Rejoice. Rejoice. Again, I say to you, rejoice. Paul is in prison, as you've been learning. He's about to stand trial that trial may result in a death sentence. Can you imagine the poor fellow chained to other soldiers, some rat or cockroach-infested filthy place, lousy food, little sleep, groanings of prisoners, maybe dead shortly. And he says, Philippians, whatever you do, be joyful. Be joyful in the Lord. That's the key, obviously. In the Lord, not in the imprisonment or the circumstances or the other stuff that may worry or, or may cause pain. He said already in verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. He says there in verse 2, agree in the Lord. Now here in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. The whole of your Christian life is to be lived in relationship to the Lord. The packing up and going home. The facing whatever you face when you get there. Work again after Easter. The things in church, all the stuff. Live it out in relation to the Lord. What does this actually mean? Sounds so easy from up here. You don't know what I'm facing. You may be saying that in your, in your mind. Don't sound glib and facile, please, preacher. But Paul has a lesson for us here. Just think. Think of some of the things that are true of you if you're a Christian. God knows exactly where you're at and what your needs are and what you're facing. He will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able to bear. That verse was an extraordinary comfort to me and my wife when she was diagnosed with cancer some years ago and was told by the surgeon, I have reserved a, a bed for you. Uh, tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock, please turn up. We're going to operate immediately. And it was as if that particular scripture came flooding into my mind. He will not allow you, Nigel, to be tested, to be pressurized more than you are able to bear. But he will, with the pressure, with the trial, make sure that he provides for you a way of escape. Nothing shall separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. The gospel is, 
is true and secure and, as I've said, can't be altered. The Lord Jesus said, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. My grace is sufficient for you. How many of you are going to stand up and say, oh, no, it isn't? Are you going to look back on life when you reach the end and say, no, no, all these words are not true? No, the Lord says they are true. He knows the way that you take. And when you have been tested, you will come forth as gold, says the Scripture. These are the things that we can rejoice in. Shift your perspective off the stuff and onto the Lord and his ways, his gospel, his word, and so on. Second mark of a, a healthy Christian mindset, be gentle. It's easy to lash out, isn't it? When you're tired, when you're packing the car, and the kids have got lost. When the people around you, students probably, were celebrating until three in the morning. When you had a dodgy burger from... <laughs> the guy who's playing the trumpet down at the student thing came to me looking absolutely white. He said, oh, I've had a, had a dodgy burger from Burger King and I've got to go play the trumpet. He played it like an angel. It is easy to lash out. Be gentle and let your gentleness be visible. A good farmer is always gentle with his sheep. The reason given is interesting in that verse, verse 5. It is that the Lord is near. Now, whether that means that he is here, very near, or whether it means that he is going to come back shortly, he's just around the corner, he's just about to come over the hill, I don't know. I have no clue. But either way is comforting. The Lord is near. My wife and I um, spent many years training puppies for the guide dogs. One of the things I miss about coming to a Butlins is the absence of dogs. I don't miss the absence of... Um, but the dogs themselves, I like. And we had, a, we had a, a, a trainer of puppy trainers called Maureen. She was a very stern Yorkshire woman. And she used to come and check up on us. You've seen folks around with, with, with the guide dogs, always in the left hand. They are absolutely amazing what they're trained to do, what we train them to do. You can put food down in front of them. They are not allowed to eat it until you say so. They have to just sit back and watch. While they're eating it, you could put your fingers down and go inside the food. Some dogs would take your hand off if you tried that. Did you know that a guide dog, all guide dogs, will um, do their business on command? And did you know that there is a special word <laughs> and do you want to know what the word is? <laughs> do you think I'm going to tell you? You'd go sneaking up behind guide dogs all over the country. <laughs> You'd cause absolute havoc. But you will not see a well-trained guide dog stopping at lampposts 
sniffing other dogs' bottoms, they won't do it. The whole thing has been trained, and Maureen used to come and see how we were getting on. Not allowed to let the dog on the sofa, all kinds of things that you have to do, you know. And we used to try, you know, really hard. We were so embarrassed to go out and the dog would misbehave. Always seemed to try harder. When, when Maureen was around, well, I want to tell you that the Lord is nearer than Maureen. <laughs> if you're taking notes, you could write that down. <laughs> Be joyful. Be gentle. Be prayerful, says verse 6. The actual words, don't be anxious. Instead, be prayerful. Have you seen those bumper stickers around? I suppose you get them more in America than here. Why pray when you can worry? 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Cast all your care on him because he cares, not about the cares, so much as he cares for you. He wants you to cast it on him because he cares for you. You know, when you're driving, um, there are some people that you can happily go to sleep when, when they're driving. There are other people, if you're being driven around by them, you're a nervous wreck. After half an hour, you'd rather get out and walk. If it goes dark, I'm keeping preaching, okay? <laughs> Two years ago, was it, when we had these appalling floods in certain parts of the country? The day after we went home from Word Alive, do any of you remember that? Leamington was flooded where I live. People were, were drowned. We had, we had water nine feet up at the bottom end of our town. Businesses were just destroyed. My wife drove me home. I was completely exhausted from, from here. And I was asleep, I think, um, between Skegness and Boston. And I woke up when we got home. Wonderful. There are other people who sit there thinking, oh. You allow the Lord to be the driver, to be the one who is in charge entirely of the stuff that happens, where you go, so that you can actually leave it to him. Relax and lie back. I slept like a baby in the car all the way home. Don't be anxious. Commit anything to the Lord in prayer. Be prayerful with thanksgiving. That's something that some of us perhaps need to work at. The summary of that verse, I read it recently. Anxious about nothing, prayerful in all things, thankful about anything. Something to work at. Fourthly, be peaceful, verse 7. Because the God of peace stands guard um, over your heart. You're going to commit yourself to these things, aren't you? Gentleness with the family. Rejoicing because of the things that are true and unchangeable. Be sad if we went home from Word Alive and there was no effect at all on our prayer life. And be peaceful. You can be at peace there in, in verse 7. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding. It, it's almost as if there's a note of surprise here in what Paul is, is saying. I think many of you can probably 
identify with this. You're facing, what shall we say, um, an operation or an interview or some very difficult uh, family meeting and you're worried about it and some friends pray for you and how many of you have said later on, you know, I couldn't believe it. When I came to it, I felt so peaceful. Does that make any sense to anybody? You look back on things? Well, Paul is saying, don't be surprised at how surprised you are. Because this is a peace which passes all understanding. He's had that experience, I guess, many, many times. Stayed upon Jehovah, said the old hymn. Hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised, perfect peace and rest. Be peaceful. And finally, uh, in this section, be positive, verse 8. Think on these things. In other words, don't let your mind become addicted uh, to negative stuff, critical things, destructive, hateful ideas. We go through the loops in our heads sometimes about people and what they've done, and it can in the end destroy you. In the long run, it will harm you more than it harms the other person. Whatever is like Jesus, whatever is noble, good, pure, loving, discipline your mind to be appreciative and thankful and think about those things. And then in verse 9, he makes an absolutely astonishing statement. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, whatever, or seen in me, that'll be right. That'll be just fine. Just do that. Imitate me in those things. Put that into practice. I can hardly get my head around it. This is quite an extraordinary thing. Paul is, is saying, find your model in me. I feel I have such a, a long, long way to go. Now, this is a remarkable thing that he says. We need models. The students need models of what it is to be a Christian student. You'll reach a phase in life where you'll need a model of how to be middle-aged. I was talking yesterday with a couple of the, of the little small fellowship groups, impact groups as we call them now, among the students. And we've been ranging widely over various things and they've been plying me with questions. And then one of them said, when, when, when does a person become middle-aged? I, I said, some very early. Some seem to get through it overnight one night. We need models. We need models of what it is to be a Christian old person. Paul is remarkable. He says, as you think about my lifestyle, my priorities, the things I've done, the stuff I've gone through and how I've borne it, think of me and imitate what you see. And the God of peace will be with you. you see that little parallel? The peace of God is with those who are prayerful. The God of peace will be with and alongside those who are obedient. And then between verses 10 and 20, we come to Paul's, what we'll call the secret of contentment. 
there is a discussion at the end of this letter of financial matters, giving and receiving. We are indeed coming back down to reality. And these verses have been a wonderful source of encouragement, I, I know, comfort and faith to those who are being financially stretched or who are in those kind of difficulties, living through times of financial reversal. My time is, is nearly gone. I just want to say something about the Philippians, something about Paul, and something about God from this second half of the chapter. Number one, the Philippians have been challengingly generous. I think we in Word Alive need to, to heed this challenge. They sent their gifts, as I've said, to Rome. They sent them repeatedly to Thessalonica. They didn't drop Paul just as soon as he went over the horizon and away, out of sight, out of mind. They kept after him with gifts and they provided for him and his team and so on. Be generous. And then something about Paul himself. Paul now is going to teach us very sensitively a vital lesson about dependence upon God. He's saying thank you, of course, for the money that they've sent, but he's also teaching them this vital thing. In all this business of giving, of being sacrificial, of giving for projects, and perhaps of receiving, we must work hard to maintain our focus on the Lord. We give to the Lord. And whatever you receive, you receive from the Lord. If we allow the giving and the receiving somehow to be a merely human thing, to an organization or a project, we're missing this point. We give to the Lord. Paul says, I'm learning a secret, actually. I didn't learn it immediately in the early days of, of what I used to do. In verse 12, I'm learning the secret of being content with whatever the Lord gives. I've been abased. I've had it rough. I've sometimes not had what I used to be used to, and, and I'm, I've sometimes not even been getting the bare necessities. I've gone really hungry sometimes. And I've been in plenty. There have been days when it, life has just been fantastic. I've had so much to eat and enjoy, to watch, to talk, people to be with. I've been in plenty as well. But in all this, I found something that money could not buy. Something far more valuable, um, it is a contentment of heart with the Lord Jesus himself. So when I've got nothing, when the money runs out, when it's tight, when I can't any longer afford to do some of the things that I used to enjoy doing, and I started to think they were my right and my lifestyle, the Lord is still there. And when things are going so well and I've got so much, it is very easy to forget that the Lord is still there. Keep that focus on, on him. He takes care of me, says Paul. I can have a happy heart with an empty pocket. It doesn't matter because I have been learning this secret. Grumbling on the part of a Christian worker 
is a sure sign that he's beginning to take his eyes off the Lord. Stinginess on the part of a Christian congregation is a sure sign that they are not following the Lord. We need generosity, but we need to keep our own hearts and minds trusty and dependent on the Lord to see our giving in those kind of terms. I've been learning this, says Paul. It wasn't automatic. I remember back in the early days of my ministry, says Paul, when I used to get fearfully agitated about some of the stuff that was going on. But I've learned to be content in him. So now I can do all things. Verse 13. Through the one who strengthens me. This doesn't mean that I can do absolutely everything. I can jump out of a a, a plane without a parachute and, and just float gently to the ground. Or I could revive the England cricket team or anything impossible like that. No, I can do anything that he calls me to do. Anything that he commands me. Any door that he opens. Anything that does need strength. I can do. Because he strengthens me. I've learned to live my life in in relation to him in in that way. Now the third thing. To do with God. Very quickly. Verse 17. God keeps an account of our giving. This is a challenging and and helpful idea. He gives me strength. He he meets all my real needs. But he keeps an account of what I give to him. Imagine it, a kind of a, a ledger in heaven. Verse 17. Not that I am looking for a gift, says Paul. I am looking for what may be credited to your account. Just just imagine that for a minute. You have an account in heaven. It was opened when you became a believer. I don't know how much you've been putting in there over the years. It would be a sad sort of a thing, wouldn't it, to arrive in heaven, you come to the check-in desk, they give you the key to your splendid mansion, you get issued with the program of events that's coming in heaven. And in your envelope, you pull out a checkbook. This is wonderful. This is, this is my free heavenly checkbook. You've got the whole of eternity to spend what you have been putting into your account. A little bit sad if you find that there isn't much there. Paul says, I want you to, to think in a completely new way about this whole matter of giving and receiving. That God be at the center of it. He takes note of what we give and he notes it down in his ledger to our account. Finally, greetings, says Paul, from everybody in Rome. All the Christians here, all my mates, the people on the outside of the prison who sometimes visit me, the prisoners here that I, I'm, uh, I've been leading to Christ recently, these soldiers that have got converted. That was a great fun, wasn't it, in the first chapter? Paul actually chained to his congregation. All these Christians, uh, they say hi. Bless you. God bless you, Philippians. Uh, It's great. And some, apparently, even from Caesar's household. I'm not sure we necessarily believe that they were the direct relatives of Caesar, although tradition has it that one of the reasons why 
uh, Paul was eventually executed by Nero is that one of, I think possibly Nero's own wife had got converted somehow through the ministry of the Christians and Nero was so furious that he had the chief Christian um, executed. I don't know whether that's true, but certainly this word household may well mean the, um, the sort of inner group of civil servants, the, the government, the cabinet almost, if you like, the administrators, and the soldiers who guarded the imperial throne. The secretaries who, who worked in, in the government around Caesar's palace. Paul says, hey, guess what? <laughs> Guys, there's some of them getting converted to two. And they are included in this greetings that we're sending to you in, in Philippi. It's wonderful. Jesus, God's son, the carpenter from Galilee, quietly beginning to rule the hearts of the men who rule the world. And the Lord is doing it through someone who is a prisoner in one of their own dungeons. Such is the grace and the power of God. May God bless you as you go. May the grace of that same Lord Jesus Christ the one who we've been coming here to meet. So humble. Riding on a donkey. May the grace of that Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders or you can visit our website www livingleadership.org where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Blessings.